You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles open to John 6, before you, let's bow to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Our Father, before your word, we must bow our knees and acknowledge our dependence upon you to give us insight and understanding as we look at your word. It is only by the presence of your indwelling spirit that we are able to discern and understand spiritual things, and so we pray that you would give us that discernment, that you would help us in that, help us to understand things which are too high for us, help us to have our minds and our hearts open to what your word says and to bow the knees of our understanding before that and make your word our final determiner of all that we believe, all that we think, and the way that we behave. May you be pleased here and may your spirit be our teacher, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is actually part two of a message that I started two weeks ago, and so there's no better place to start part two of a message than where part one ended. So we are in John 6. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. We're in John 6, and we are looking at the unbelief of the crowd, the crowd that witnessed the miraculous signs recorded earlier, the crowd that saw the feeding of the 5,000. And so we're going to pick it up. We got through the end of verse 30. Verse 30. If memory serves me right, and you better hope that it does, because memory's not going to serve you, hopefully, as well as it serves me. We are at the end of verse 30. Verse 31 Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. That's the passage that's before us. And so just a couple of sentences to sort of remind you of the context that we're looking at and to remind you of what it is that brought us up to the beginning of verse 31. This is the crowd who had seen the miraculous signs, sought Jesus out, and they found him in the synagogue at Capernaum, verse 59 tells us. And there in the synagogue at Capernaum, Jesus began to teach, and the crowd then met him there. And they were following him not because they had seen the signs and understood the significance of the signs and understood from the signs that he had done who he was and what he was offering to them. These people were following him because they wanted another meal. And Jesus rebuked them for that in verses 26 and 27 when he says to them, you're following me for the wrong reasons, not because you understood the significance of the signs, but because you merely want another meal. And you ought not to work and strive for the things which perish, that is food for the body, but for things which endure for eternal life, the food that is sufficient to feed you for all of eternity and to give you life. And that rebuke or reproof by the crowd, they understood that to mean that Jesus was telling them that there were works, certain law works that they needed to do in order to merit eternal life. And so they asked him, well, Lord, then what law works? What works do you give us to do, the works of God, that I can do which will heap up or merit for us eternal life? And Jesus then, in sort of a play on words, said, you want to know what to do? Do this. Stop doing. In other words, this is the work that you are to do. Stop working. Stop striving. Stop pursuing this and simply believe upon me. Entrust your eternity. Entrust your destiny to me. Cast all of your hope, all of your faith, all of your anticipation for eternal life on the one whom the Father has sent, the one on whom the Father has set his seal. Believe on me. Stop your working. Stop trying to merit salvation. 
and just trust me. Now that's an outlandish claim for somebody who was an ordinary man. And that outlandish claim was not lost on the crowd. They got it. They understood exactly what he was saying, which is why they then said in verse 30, what work, what sign, what miracle do you do in order that we may see it and believe? You want us to stop trying to heap up favor with God and simply to trust you, put all of our confidence in you. That's outlandish. If you want us to do that, then why don't you show to us something some sign, some miracle that will convince us to believe in you. Now that statement tells us one of two things. Either the crowd had a horrible short-term memory problem because they had just seen the multiplication of the bread and the fish less than 24 hours earlier, or this crowd of people had an insatiable appetite for signs. They wanted the signs. Now, had they forgotten of the bread and the, the fish and the loaves 24 hours earlier? No, they hadn't. That's why they were seeking them. That's why they came to Capernaum. They wanted another meal. But they did have this insatiable appetite for signs. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, the, the Greeks seek for wisdom. In other words, you want to impress a Greek? You wax eloquent wisely. Give them some worldly philosophy of men, and they will fall down before you and love you and adore you. You want to impress a Jew? You give them a sign. Greeks seek for wisdom, Jews seek for a sign. And no better proof of that statement could be offered than the text that is before us. Having seen him heal the sick, having seen him cast out demons, having seen him multiply bread and fish, they now come and they say, you want us to believe in you? Give us a sign. Give us some sort of sign. Now the type of sign, the scope of sign that they wanted is seen in verse 31. And we're going to get to that in just a second. Verse 31 where they say, Our fathers ate the bread in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, the reality of it is, is, even though they had seen the multiplication of the bread and the fish less than 24 hours earlier, they have come to him now and they have asked him for another sign. Now, let me propose this question to you. Is there any sign that Jesus could have done which would have convinced this crowd? Is there any miracle at all that he could have performed that would have caused this crowd to believe? There is not. There is not. And Jesus knew this. In fact, this is one of the things that the Gospel of, De- of John demonstrates to us. The reality is that no sign would have been sufficient. No sign. There was nothing Jesus could have done, and He could have done anything. There was nothing He could have done which would have caused them to believe. Because the problem with unbelief is never a lack of evidence. It is a what? A love for darkness. I've said that so many times, and still you can't fill in the rest of the sentence. The problem with unbelief is never a lack of evidence. It is always a... Love for darkness. Always. And no sign, no miracle is sufficient to dislodge an unbeliever's love for darkness. No sign is sufficient to do that. Because they have a love for darkness and an equal, if not greater, hatred for the light. And no sign is capable of overcoming that. No sign would be sufficient. It didn't matter what Jesus would do. They would raise the bar again and say, well, that was good. But now, what miracle do you do so that we might believe in you? They would have wanted another sign. The Gospel of John, one of the things that John does, and we we see this beginning in chapter 2, it actually comes to a head in John chapter 11. One of the things that John does in his Gospel is demonstrate to us that no sign is sufficient to create or maintain true belief. True belief. True, genuine, saving belief is not a result of a sign being done. People don't believe because of the miracles. 
Contrast that with John chapter 4. Do you remember the woman at the well? She believed. Did she receive a miracle? No miracle. She simply took Jesus at his word. That was the issue in John 4. How about all the villagers in Samaria? Did Jesus work a miracle in Samaria? No miracles recorded in Samaria. They believed what? Without any miracles. How about the nobleman at the end of John chapter 4? Did he believe in Jesus? He did. But before the miracle, before Jesus healed his son, he believed without any miracles. But true faith is a God-wrought, divine, supernatural faith, a God-given faith, which trusts Christ and embraces Him and continues from now all the way through until we die and on into eternity. That is genuine saving faith. A miracle-based faith is not a genuine faith. And all of that comes to a head in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And in spite of the fact that they see Lazarus walking... They know of the miracle. They know who did it. The religious leaders of the nation of Israel, rather than bowing down before Jesus, they they give up trying to deny that He's working miracles. They gave up even entirely trying to to, to attribute His miracle-working powers to something else. And instead they confess, He has raised Lazarus from the dead. If we don't kill Him, everyone will believe on Him. They knew how He was working the miracles, that it was the power of God. They knew what He had done. And yet, with... Lazarus in front of them, they do not believe. Why is that? Because John said in Luke chapter, uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. John chapter 11, the religious leaders just simply said, we have to kill him. And they begin to plot Jesus' death, how it is that they were going to put him to death. Why? Because the problem was not a lack of evidence. The problem was a love for darkness and a hatred for the light. And so true faith, true genuine faith, does not need and is not created by signs. Do you realize that there is no such thing as an atheist? It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Atheists deny that God exists. I don't actually believe that a true atheist exists. You know why? Because Scripture says that everybody knows there is a God. Everybody does. They can deny that. They can war against that truth, but atheists really truly do not exist. Because Romans chapter 1 says they know the one true God. They don't know Him in a salvific sense, but they know who He is. And they know enough about Him because they see His invisible attributes displayed in creation. All of His power, all of His majesty, all of His glory. They see that. And they stand on the Creator's creation every day of their life. And they know that order requires an orderer. Design requires a designer. Life requires a life giver. A creation requires a creator. They know that. They understand that. They have that in their heart and their mind. They have the law of the creator written on their heart that they sin against. And their conscience bears witness against that every single day and accuses them before the throne of God. They know there is a God and they know they are guilty before Him. They have that inherent in their knowledge. They know that. Like Dave talked about last week, even before he got saved. He knew there was a God and he knew that God was good and he knew that He was not. Every unbeliever knows that. There's no such thing as an atheist. Look, nobody writes books trying to argue that Santa Claus doesn't exist. You won't walk into Barnes and Nobles and find a whole shelf dedicated to proving that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Nobody's opposed to teaching the Santa Claus, uh, teaching Santa Claus in the public school system, are they? Why? Because we all agree that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Two things you know about an atheist. They do not believe that God exists and they hate him. They hate him. They do. They absolutely hate him. And they do not really honestly believe that there is no God. Because scripture testifies differently. And the problem with an atheist It's not a lack of evidence. It's a love for darkness. And that's the same problem with this crowd in John chapter 6. And they blame God, the crowd does, they blame Jesus for their unbelief. 
Do you notice their statement in verse 30? Read it with me again. They said to him, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? The unbeliever, the atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic, the person who is locked in their unbelief will always try and blame God for their unbelief. They try and lay the guilt of their unbelief at the feet of Jesus. And that's what the crowd does here. Bertrand Russell, a famed, famous, a famed agnostic and atheist, and I use atheist because I just told you I don't believe atheists exist, right? But by atheists, I mean people who deny God's existence. So Bertrand Russell, the famed agnostic atheist skeptic, once said, if there is a God and if I stand before him, I will ask him why it is that he did not give us enough evidence. Yeah. And so in the thinking of Bertrand Russell, whose fault is it that he does not believe? Whose fault? It's God's fault. God didn't give me enough evidence. He could have. Creation is not enough. Stars are not enough. Clouds are not enough. Trees are not enough. This globe upon which I stand is not enough. My body, my intellect, my mind, none of those are enough. My seeing eye, my feeling hands, my nose, my mouth, my taste, my taste buds, my eternal soul, none of that is enough. Bertrand Russell said, if there's a God and if I stand before him, I will ask him why he did not give us enough evidence. So whose fault is it that God does not exist? Well, it's God's fault. Or sorry, whose fault is it that Bertrand Russell does not believe? It's God's fault because God didn't give him enough evidence. That is the exact same thing that the crowd is doing in John chapter 6. Give us a sign and then we will believe. And so if Jesus doesn't do the sign, whose fault is it that they do not believe? That's the trick in their question. If he can do a sign, he ought to do a sign. And if he does not do a sign, then he cannot condemn us for our unbelief. He cannot hold us accountable for our unbelief. You cannot accuse us of being sinful and not believing because you, Jesus, did not give us enough evidence. Here is our standard. Here is our bar. Come up to this with the evidence and then we will believe. And if Jesus had done a sign, you know what they would have responded with? That is not sufficient evidence. Every atheist, every agnostic, every skeptic, every unbeliever does the exact same thing. And millions throughout every age have done the same thing that the crowd does in John 6. They deny what is undeniable, and they lay the blame for their unbelief at the feet of God as if He is to blame because they have not given Him, He has not given them enough evidence. So I'm giving you all this because I want you to see the heart condition of this crowd in John chapter 6. You realize that an unbeliever is not apathetic, that is without passion. He's not apathetic and merely unconvinced in some, in some neutral territory. The unbeliever is born in a state of enmity against God and hostility toward God. Romans 6 says his mind cannot submit itself to the law of God. That carnal mind will not submit itself to the law of God. It wages war against God. And every unbeliever is an enemy of God. Now you say, well, I grew up in a Christian home and I never became, I never was really an enemy of God. No, you were. You just had your parents steering you away from that. And had they done nothing, you would have, that enmity would have opened up into full-blown hostility by the time you were in your teenage years. Every man in his natural state, apart from the grace of God, is an enemy of God, separated from God. He is not apathetic. There is no such thing as a neutral person. There, that is the myth of neutrality. There is no neutral individual. Every individual is either redeemed and born again and in the kingdom of light, or they are enemies of God in their mind through wicked works hostile against God and unable and unwilling to subject themselves to the law of God. This crowd is not sitting there simply waiting for Jesus to do something so that they can believe. This crowd is not sitting there wanting to believe. The crowd is passionately hostile against Him. 
What they want from Him is the same thing we have seen them want from Him all the way through this. They want the gifts, the benefits, the free meals. They want Him on their terms. They want a king that they want, a kingdom that they can create. That's what they want. And they are hostile against the one true God. And you're going to see by the end of the chapter that once Jesus unfolds for them, the true nature of their hostility, that they leave Him. They're done with that. They don't want His teaching. They don't want to submit themselves to that type of a Jesus. They don't want Him for what He offers. They want Him for what they can get, for what they want. This is a hostile group of people. So what type of sign then do they have in their mind that they are expecting from Him? All of that was kind of introduction. Now we get to verse 31. And our time is halfway done. Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now verse 31 tells you what type of a miracle they're thinking in their minds that they want Jesus to perform. Why don't you give to us a sign? Say, for instance, like that that Moses did. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, just as it's written in the Scriptures, and they quote the Old Testament text. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And you notice how they shift the focus to our fathers. There's somebody else who did this in the Gospel of John. Maybe you don't remember it. It's in John chapter 4, when Jesus confronted the woman at the well with her adultery. You're right, you've had five husbands, and the one you have right now is not your own. You're living in sin right now. Do you remember what she did? You must be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She just dodged the, the, the issue entirely, right? Switched it over to the focus on our fathers. Goes back in time. Let's talk about worshipping on this mountain. Anything but my adultery. Now Jesus has twice reproved them and rebuked them for their inferior, carnal, self-centered motives. Twice. And now what do they do? They want to talk about something back in the Old Testament. Our fathers ate the manna. Let's do that. In their mind at least, they are connecting the miracle that Jesus did with the miracle that they think Moses did. Back with the, in the Old Testament. They see the similarities. A group of people in the wilderness. A group of people hungry. God providing through a miraculous means food and sustenance for these two groups of people. And all of that bread coming down out of heaven from manna and Jesus being the one who is able to do this for the people in the wilderness. They see a similarity. But in their minds, and this is key, in their minds, the miracle that Jesus did was inferior to the miracle that Moses did. Now you'll notice that the phrase are just the phrase at the end of verse 31, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat, is either in capital letters or it's in italics or it's quotation marks, something to indicate probably in your Bible that that is a quotation from the Old Testament. It is. The story of the manna, if you would like to read it, it's in Exodus chapter 16. And I'll just read you a couple of passages from the Old Testament that describe this miracle. Exodus 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread out of heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Exodus 16:15. when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now probably that quotation that the people give here may be from Exodus 16. It would be a pretty loose quotation. But it may also be from Psalm 78, verse 24, where the psalmist writes, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. That's probably the passage of the psalm that they're quoting. Psalm 105, verse 40 says, They asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. Nehemiah refers to this miracle in Nehemiah chapter 9, when Nehemiah prays, So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. So they're making the connection between the manna miracle through Moses and the 
feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 through Jesus. And they've connected that in their minds. Now they're asking for another sign, but they're upping the ante a little bit, and they're saying, give us a sign, something like Moses did. What they've done is they've raised the bar because in their minds, the miracle that Jesus did is inferior to Moses' miracle. It's inferior. Why would it be inferior? Well, Moses' miracle, or the miracle that took place in the days of Moses, and by the way, Jesus corrects it in verse 32 when he tells him, it wasn't Moses who did this, it was my father. They attributed it to Moses, but really it was God. The miracle of the man in the wilderness took place over a 40-year period of time, every day except on the Sabbath, every day for 40 years. Jesus provided one meal. Just one meal. I mean, it's quite different than providing a meal or three meals every day for 40 years, right? Second, the manna that was provided in Moses' day was provided for an entire nation. Jesus just fed 20,000 people, counting women and children. I mean, that's small potatoes compared to an entire nation of over a million people, right? And a third difference was that the, the manna of Moses' day was manna directly from heaven. It was a heavenly bread. It was something that they had never seen before, never eaten before, never handled before. The, the bread that Jesus provided was just ordinary bread. Ordinary bread and fish. They had seen that before. They're familiar with that. So 40 years as compared to one meal. An entire nation compared to just 20,000 people. And bread from heaven that they had never seen before compared to the little pancake-tized bread that they were familiar with. In their minds, the miracle that Jesus wrought was inferior to Moses. And now they're raising the bar and saying, you want us to believe in you? Do something Moses-like. Don't just give us one meal. Give us a multitude of meals. Don't just do this for 20,000 people. Do it for the nation. And don't just do it with ordinary bread. Do something magnificent. Some bread from heaven that nobody has ever seen before. That's what they're asking him to do. And really the question behind their question is, are you greater than Moses? Can you show to us that you're greater than Moses? Do you remember what the woman at the well said to Jesus? And they said, if you knew what I was able to provide for you, I'd be able to give you water, which if you drank of that water, you would never thirst again. You remember what she said? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it, he and his whole household and all of his flocks? Are you greater than Jacob? What's the answer to that question? Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Almost certainly. And here, that's the implication behind this question. Are you you as good as Moses? I mean, you've done a miracle similar to Moses, but up the ante a bit, step it up. Raise it to the next level. Offer us something Moses-like. Show us that you are at least equal to or greater than Moses. And it's the same question that comes up in John chapter 8 when the Jewish Pharisees say to him, are you greater than our father Abraham? All the way through the Gospel of John, this is it. Are you greater than Jacob? Yeah. All right, you're greater than Moses? Yeah. Okay. Are you greater than Abraham? John chapter 8? Jesus is, isn't he? Greater than Abraham even. By the way, the Jewish expectation of the day, and this is attested to in um, books outside of the New Testament, extra-biblical sources, the Jewish expectation of the Messiah of the day was that when the Messiah came, he would renew the manna miracle that Moses worked when he was in the wilderness. That when the Messiah arrived, he would begin to rain down provision from heaven, abundant provision for the entire nation, just like Moses did. After all, if Moses, the great redeemer from Egypt, provided bread for them in the wilderness, then when the Messiah came, an even greater Redeemer, He would provide bread or sustenance again for the entire nation. That was their expectation. That was what they all anticipated. And so here's what the crowd is saying. You want to prove to us you're the Messiah? Then meet our expectations. 
Is that not a blasphemous statement? You want to prove to us that you are who you are? Meet our expectations. Do something that we want. Here is our bar. Here is our line. Here is our criteria. Now you meet it. And then we will believe. Would they have believed? No, they wouldn't have believed. Such a hard-hearted, prideful, arrogant, condescending, judgmental, hypocritical, blasphemous, selfish, self-centered, man-centered way of thinking. This request to the crowd. And Jesus rebukes them for it again, again. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who had given you the bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The very first thing Jesus corrects, they had two basic misunderstandings. Number one, they misunderstood the source of the miracle, and Jesus corrects that. And second, they misunderstood the symbolism of the miracle. They misunderstood the source of the miracle. Who was it that rained down bread out of heaven in Moses' day? Was it Moses? No. Do you realize that the man of miracle was not Moses at all? God simply said to Moses, this is what I'm going to do. Tell the people to do this. Gather it up every day except on the Sabbath. And see if the people will, will follow me and follow my law and, and uh, what I have told them to do. But Moses didn't strike a rock or speak to a rock or speak to a cloud or do anything to receive that. Every morning when they got up, the manna was there waiting for them to gather it up. And they gathered it up. Moses never worked a single miracle for the manna. So it wasn't Moses who did this, even though they attributed it to Moses. And so Jesus corrects them. You're misunderstanding the source of the miracle. It wasn't Moses. It was my father. And yet they had seen nothing in the manna except a man to be revered. And it was Moses. And they attributed it to him and revered him for it and totally missed the fact that it was God who had given him the bread and not Moses at all. Second, they misunderstood the meaning or the symbolism of the sign of the manna. What was the bread coming down from heaven supposed to symbolize or point to? Was it just a sign or a miracle and end in itself? Or did it point forward to something else? Verse 32 and 33 tells us that it was pointing forward to something else. That's why Jesus says, It was not Moses who gave you this. It was my Father who gives you, present tense, the bread from heaven, the true bread out of heaven. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now Jesus is pointing forward to some, or pointing to something else. That which God provided in Moses' day was intended to point forward to something else. Now do you remember I told you, and this is significant, the people thought that the miracle that Jesus did with the multiplying of the bread and fish was inferior to Moses' miracle. If they didn't think that, they wouldn't have asked him for another miracle. If they saw them as on par, they would have never asked him for another sign. But they asked him for another sign and a greater one. And now Jesus turns that on its head in verses 32 and 33 and points out that the manna in the wilderness was not a greater miracle than what he had just done. But in fact, what it was that he was providing was greater than the miracle in the desert. They said, your sign is inferior to Moses. And Jesus is saying, I am superior to both Moses and the sign because the thing that Moses gave pointed forward to me. And here's how the sign in the wilderness was superior. Uh, sorry, here is how Jesus' provision is superior to Moses' sign in the wilderness. Moses' sign in the wilderness was only for a time. It was not eternal. It was only for 40 years. As Jesus said, Moses gave this. It ended. But my Father now gives you permanent, present tense, the bread of life. What Moses did was for a period of time. You think I provided one meal and that's insufficient, inferior to 40 years? What Moses did was only for 40 years. What I'm offering is for eternal life, for all of eternity. What Jesus is offering is greater than what Moses offered. Because Moses did it for a time, Jesus does it for eternity. He provides something for eternity. Second, the sign is always inferior to its fulfillment. You're driving down the street 
And uh, with all the construction going on here, you see signs, new signs, uh, everywhere you go, and you're not quite sure which lane to go in or what time of the day to go into what lane or, or whatever, and you're weaving in between all the orange cones and all of that. As you see a sign put up, even a new sign, that points you to, say, Spokane or Coeur d'Alene, let me ask you, which is the greater reality? The sign that points to the city or the city? Which is greater? The city. The sign just points to the greater reality. It is the same with signs and miracles in the Bible. The sign of manna from heaven providing for the physical needs of the nation pointed to something that is far superior. It was intended to be a picture of the antitype or the fulfillment of that picture, which is Jesus. And he is the greater fulfillment. The manna is insignificant compared to that which the manna was intended to portray. What was the manna intended to portray? The true bread that comes down out of heaven, given by the Father to give life to the world. And that was what the Father was then offering and what Jesus was offering to the people. A third way in which the, Jesus is superior to Moses' miracle and the manna is that the manna only provided for physical life. Jesus provides for eternal life. That's far greater. And a fourth one is that the manna provided for a nation. And Jesus' offer of eternal life is to what? The world. That's it. You think, you think offering bread to a nation is big stuff? The Father is now giving bread and offering it to the whole world. Verse 33. The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now by world, listen, does Jesus mean every man, woman, and child, every person who has ever lived? Are all of those people given eternal life in heaven? Do they all get it? By world, does Jesus mean every person who has ever lived so that hell will be empty and heaven will be populated with everybody who has existed here. Does he mean that by world? He does not mean that by world. He can't mean that by world because we have qualified it elsewhere that it is those who believe who get eternal life, not everybody. So what does John mean and what does Jesus mean by the use of the word world in this context? It's not everybody who has ever lived who will be given eternal life. But the life that is offered is sufficient to give life to the world, and it is offered not to one nation, but to all nations. It is all tribes and tongues and kindreds and peoples from every language and every group and every continent on the face of the earth, which is included now in this redemptive plan of God. The manna of the Old Testament was given to a nation for physical life. The bread of life, the true bread of heaven, comes down out of heaven and is offered to the world and gives life to all nations, to all who will believe. And lest you and I think that Jesus here means every man and every woman who has ever lived and every person who has ever lived, Old Testament and New, lest we come to that conclusion, he qualifies it in verses 35 through 40 when he says that those who give life are those who have been given by the Father to the Son, whom the Son comes to redeem, whom the Father draws to the Son, whom the Son redeems and secures and loses none and raises all of them up on the last day. That's who gets the life. It's not everybody who has lived it is everybody described in verses 35 through 40. Lest you and I think that the life which is given to the world is eternal life for every person so that nobody goes to hell, 
Jesus is clear. It is only those who believe in me and embrace me and repent of their sins and trust in me and, and, and come to me and are one with me in my death. It is only those whom the Father has given to the Son who come to the Son because the Father draws them to the Son whom the Son saves and secures for all of eternity and raises all of them up on the last day and loses none. That's who gets the life that is offered to the whole world described in verse 33. Are we all clear on that? And we're going to get that in verses 35 to 30 to 40, which we haven't even got into yet. Jesus clarifies who it is that he means by world. So the offer of Christ and the offer of bread and eternal life is greater than anything Moses provided in the wilderness. Far from being inferior, he is far superior to what Moses did. And so now I ask you this question. With all of that, did the crowd get it? Did they understand it? Are you shaking your head? Really? But look at verse 34. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. What do you mean by that? Lord, always give us this bread. Are they saying to him, you are our curios, our Lord, and we will submit to you, and would you provide this bread for us that you are speaking of? We want you. Are they saying to him, we are sorry for seeking you for the wrong reasons. Instead, we want you. Give us yourself. Give us that bread from heaven. We want eternal life and we want it with you. Is that what they want? Is that what they're asking? It's not what they're asking. The word Lord can be translated sir. It can either refer to Lord as in that exalted title of Lord, or it could just be translated as a title of respect, sir. I think it's a title of respect because the context clearly shows that these people are not believers. Verse 60, they leave him. When they hear him teach, they leave him. They depart. They want nothing of that. These people are not believers, and they're not coming to him and submitting to his lordship. Instead, they are saying, much like the woman at the well, and there's so many parallelisms here, much like the woman at the well, give us this bread. Do you remember what Jesus said when he said, if you drink of the water which I uh, if you drink of the water which I will give you, it will be a well of living water welling up inside of you to eternal life and you will never thirst again? What did the woman say? Lord, give me this water so that I may never come here and dwell and draw again, so that I will never thirst. She, at that point in the conversation, still thought he was talking about physical water. Some water which would quench her physical thirst forever. And so she asked him to give her that water. These Jews in John 6 are doing the same thing. Oh, you have bread? You have bread sufficient to feed the entire world? Not just our nation continually? Well then, Lord, always give us this bread. Go ahead, do the sign. You're telling us you can provide this, then provide manna not just for our nation, but for every nation. And do it how often? Always. Make it start now and make it never end. Now they've just raised the bar even higher. They've gone from feeding the multitude and 20,000 people, raising the bar and saying, give us something Moses-like. Do it for our whole nation. Jesus, as you understand, what is being offered to you is sufficient for every nation. And it's not just like manna, it's true bread. you got true bread that will feed all of the nations so that none of us will ever hunger again? All right, do it. Not just for our nation, but for every nation. Do it continually. Never ending. Start now and let it never end. They've just raised the bar even higher. These people are carnal, self-centered, self-seeking, selfish in every way. It is all about them and the gifts. And they are coming to Jesus not because they are willing to humble themselves in repentant faith before him, but because they are raising the bar and saying, this is what we expect. You meet it. You meet it, and we'll believe. You jump through our hoops, then we will follow you. These are our expectations. Leave our expectations unmet. And do not condemn us, then do not condemn us for our unbelief. But if you want us to believe, you do this. And if you don't do this, then you have no reason to condemn us for our unbelief. That is prideful, arrogant, critical, 
That is the darkness and hardness of an unbelieving heart. One more thing I want you to observe before we, before we quit today. One last observation. The reason that we've I've taken the time to go through this, demanding signs and why all of that is the whole attitude of the crowd. You are never going to, we, we can never understand verses 35 through 40, which is a very difficult passage of scripture. We're never going to fully appreciate and understand that if we don't understand the people to whom Jesus is speaking. Who is he speaking to in verses 35 to 40? When he gives the sovereignty of God in salvation. He is speaking to people who are remaining in unbelief. They have seen the multiplying of the bread and fish. They've seen that. They have seen his miracles. They have heard him teach. They have witnessed all of that, and yet they remain in unbelief. Why? How? Verses 35 and 40. That's it. You want to explain that type of unbelief? You can only explain that type of unbelief from the perspective of God, and that's what we're given in verses 35 to 40. But I want you to notice that Jesus did not capitulate to their demands. Do you notice that? Have you noticed that in the passage? They wanted a sign. They wanted this sign. They wanted that sign. They kept raising the bar. And at no point did Jesus ever capitulate and give them what it was that they demanded. Why not? If you get to the end of chapter 6, and you say, well, you get to the end of chapter 6, and everybody leaves him, and he's left with 12 men. That's it, 12. And one of them is a devil. One of them is going to betray him. He started the chapter with a crowd of 5,000 only counting men, maybe 20,000 with women and children. And he ends the chapter with 12 men, one of which is a devil, so let's just say 11 real believers. One of them a betrayer. Now from hindsight, you would look at, get to the end of chapter 6 and you say, what if Jesus had just done the sign back at the beginning? Then all of them would have believed. And how different chapter 6 could have turned out. He could have ended chapter 6 with 5,011 believers and one betrayer. But instead he ends chapter 6 with 11 men. Wow, is Jesus a fool or what? Hard for us to say that, isn't it? In the sovereignty of God, Jesus did not capitulate to their demands because He knew their hearts. He knew that no sign was sufficient. He knew that no matter what He did, they would not believe. Why? Because they didn't belong to Him. That's John chapter 6. They would not come and take of the bread of life because they were not His. Because they were not His, they weren't interested in Him whatsoever. And everything in John 6 is intended to reveal the shallow, insufficient faith of the crowd and to show that it was only the 11 with one betrayer who stayed with him and it was only those 11 who truly believed in him because he had the words of life. You and I can never be faithful if we compromise the truth and capitulate to the fleshly, whimsical demands of a hostile and unbelieving world thinking that with such compromise we can draw people into the kingdom. It never works. Never. It can never work. That's not church growth philosophy, friends. That's unfaithfulness. The truth is what the truth is. And whether it is 11 or 5,011 that follow it, that is not up to us to determine, and it's not really up to us to even care. We need to be faithful to the truth, and that's what Jesus did. He gave them the truth. He would not capitulate to their fleshly, worldly, hostile demands and expectations. He would not bend to that because he would never compromise the truth in order to gain a following, even a shallow following. Let's pray together. Our God, we pray that you would keep us faithful to this task, faithful to your word, and persevere us in that grace. We ask in the name of your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.